You're listening to All the Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. I've always seen my home as being somewhat transient. Maybe that's because I've moved house a lot. Or maybe it's because I never saw myself staying in the same small town where I was born. It wasn't until my small town was threatened that I came to realise the strong connection that I had to it. Between 2019 and 2020, Australia experienced an unprecedented bushfire season. New South Wales saw 5.4 million hectares burnt, causing widespread devastation to land, homes and wildlife. At this time, I was living overseas and was incredibly fortunate not to have experienced any personal danger. But watching the land I grew up on be destroyed from afar left me scared, guilty and powerless. Flying into Sydney Airport for Christmas was the first time I truly got a sense of the devastation. As we descended, the residual smoke became so thick that it blocked out the sun from the ground, covering the land in the eerie red glow that had become the norm. This place that I thought I knew so well was unrecognisable. This week's stories are about devastation, nature and healing. And heads up, today's episode is heavy and includes discussions of environmental disasters, intergenerational trauma, suicidal ideation, colonialism, and family violence. Please listen with care. And if you need to talk to someone, Lifeline is a safe space to be heard. Call 13 11 14. In our first story, Alice reflects on the Australian bushfire season where she was evacuated from her home three times over six weeks. Um, what kind of bird? I mean, at the moment, there's a lot of rainbow lorikeets, sometimes on a very special occasion, the black cockatoos. But actually, we saw them more just after the fire hit Maria. They all came into town. It was... So spooky because they're huge and I guess they were all burnt out. My name's Alice Ansara and I live in Maruya, which is a pretty small town on the far south coast of the east coast of Australia. So many of the bushfires we've had in Australia, the catastrophic bushfires, have been one day. This just went on and on and on. Alice, Project Robin, you should evacuate from Maruya now. Uh, we're just heading down to Maruya to fight this fire. You need to evacuate now, alright? Come and stay at our place. I think Esther, the two-year-old, was having a nap, grabbed Mavis, the four-year-old, I tried to be really calm, you know, with them, like not be unrealistic or pretend that there weren't bushfires around us. But, you know, they're so little, like I just tried to be calm and gentle and approachable all the time with them. So I was like, okay, darlings, I think there's a fire coming, a big fire. And so now it's time for us to go get your little bag Quickly, I need you to put on your little outfit because I'd gotten outfits 
ready for them. So wool and cotton, things that weren't going to burn to their skin if we got caught in the fire. Put on your little fire outfits and let's hop in the car and go somewhere else. Like the whole sky was this Armageddon orange. Everything was orange. Everything was covered in smoke. So it was a very kind of end of the world feeling. For the first time, you know, I saw the forests that had been burnt. We just drove for kilometers and kilometers through burnt bush and it was, ah, it was like it had snowed. Everything was white with ash. It was beautiful. And the trees were birch trees in winter or something, kind of sticks of black. And we just went past property after property that was burnt. All that was remaining was, a, you know, the roof that was flattened on the ground. I remember my daughter just said to me, why are all the trees on fire? You know, they were still burning in the trees. And this trip that, you know, normally takes two hours, 40 minutes to my mum's in Wollongong took us about 16 hours. Parts of the Princess Highway were literally burning and we couldn't get through and we'd have to wait. And the amazing people who were clearing the roads were just working as hard as they could to get everybody out. And at one point at Burrill Lake, we could get no further. It was dusk. And I'd just packed all the chickpeas, but really hadn't packed any other food. So we didn't really have food. The kids were, you know, kind of ratty and we were anxious and we lay down in a park and somebody came up to us and said, oh, you've got kids. Do you want to come and stay at our house until the road's clear? Which was beautiful. I mean, and there were acts of generosity like this everywhere. Everybody tried to have a sleep and I just stayed awake the whole night. As soon as I saw that there was movement on the roads, I think it was at about four o'clock in the morning, I just got everybody up and moving on the road again. We eventually arrived in Wollongong and it was like we'd come out of a war zone into a country of peace and we were devastated. We were shell-shocked. It was like people couldn't understand what we had come from. And this is just in Wollongong. The fire front came past our place. The trees were on fire. And my partner spent eight, ten hours just putting out spot fires nonstop. So it didn't burn our house. But then the next day and probably for about the next week, these black cockatoos just came in from the mountains, which was all burned. The trees at our boundary fence, they were just tearing big strips of the burnt tree off. And it would have still been hot. Yeah, I'm sorry to say I, I don't know what they were doing, but I remember the sound of them. Oh, I feel really emotional. Sorry. <laughs> the devastation on, on the land and on the animals on all the animals was like something that is so hard still to come to terms with and seeing all of those black cockatoos in a place where you would not normally see them doing I don't know what 
you know, trying to find food or just survive was so hard. And I think because everybody was just trying to survive themselves, I felt this real sense of impotence and like I personally had let down, you know, wildlife and that, you know, we as a species of humans have let down all the other species in such a horrific way. I think that's why I feel, that's why I felt so sad. That story was produced by Sarah Mashman and won the 2021 Hearsay Create Provoke Award. Tiara is a sovereign tribal woman on a journey of self-exploration. In this next story, she explores the nature of life and the light and dark it encompasses. I was sitting on a bus when my mind started to run again, sinking into the depths of an ocean of dark ponderings that annually flood my head. I've spent quite a lot of time on buses, leaving and returning to Darwin, but no matter how far I run, I always come back. I mean, it is home. I was born and raised up here on Gulamedigan country, birthed by my two amazing parents who gifted me a lineage that spreads across land and sea. On my father's side, we have Irish, Scottish, English, Luritja, and Wombaya blood. And on my mother's side, Chinese, Japanese, Filipino, Spanish, German, Gulamedigan, and Garajati, and Wataman. You can already imagine how hard it was to navigate this journey of identity. Together, my parents shared a vision of breaking the cycle of intergenerational trauma and cre- creating a life that they never had for their children to grow and flourish. They exceedingly achieved this vision and more. Whilst on their journey, they established the Balling Youth Foundation, which is an organization focused on the healing of at-risk youth in Darwin. Balling Youth runs camps taking young men and women out on country to heal and det- detox from whatever they are struggling with in their lives. So I grew up on these camps and they were a very large part of the shaping of my character and who I am today. And most of my morals and founding perspectives were conceived in that space. Growing up, not experiencing the trauma that most people did, but having the sight to see it and comprehend it set me up to walk through this world with quite a different vision to most children. Everywhere I went, all I saw was the byproduct of trauma. And being gifted this sight from such a young age was a blessing and a curse because it made life extremely heavy, but at least I wasn't ignorant. Therefore, this experience on the bus was not unfamiliar as I have been tapping into these thoughts and ponderings my entire life. Except this time, the environment was a lot different. I was in a big city off country. Uh, It was mid-COVID. The extreme energy of Black Lives Matter rallies was still lingering. I was dealing with my own internal and external conflicts and all in the same breath, just trying to understand who the heck I was. Those thoughts sent me into a trajectory flip. 
It felt like a light switch flicked and everything went dark. I got off the bus and continued to walk home in the stillness of the night and found shelter under a bench in a park. The rain began to pour and so did the waterfalls on my cheeks. The monsoonal tears continued for days mixed with a concoction of suicidal thoughts, anger towards society, frustration towards myself, hopelessness and hate for everything. I decided to lock myself in my room in hopes a solution would reveal amongst the deafening solitude. Here I was lying in bed, sinking into the depths when all of a sudden I had flipped my laptop open and I was typing every tangible thought I could gather and pour them out as best I could in desperate need of a release. That night, I completely lost my mind. It was a rebirth and I had to start all over again. After spending my entire life consumed by my overthinking analytical head, all of a sudden everything was out of control. It was like sitting in the center of a room surrounded by a circle of people screaming their opinions at the exact same volume and no one to mediate. I could feel so much but didn't have the mental capacity to examine it within my head. This was a great challenge because all my life I relied on my mind to keep me safe, which was ironic because it was the exact thing that destroyed me. After a few weeks of surfing these extreme tidal waves of emotions, I decided it was time for me to go back to saltwater jungle of a country to reground and heal. When I returned to Gulamedigan country, I adopted many distractions, a couple jobs and an addiction to exercise. One of the jobs was just folding t-shirts for House of Darwin. And around this time, it was leading up to Invasion Day. And they asked me if I would come and help run the store at the rally. And prior to them asking me, I already agreed I wasn't going to attend because I didn't feel stable enough. But it was another distraction. So I said yes. It was the night before the store and I had another breakdown I fell limp to the bathroom floor of my friend's apartment. More waterfall facials. I woke up the next rising, put glasses on to cover my puffy eyes and headed off. As we arrived and finished setting up the store, I noticed my beautiful sister, Milil Mamey. And she came over, we greeted, and she mentioned that there was a poet who no longer could attend. And with very little conscious thought, I offered to speak and she accepted my offer. And as she walked away, I laughed to myself. I was like, what the heck was that about, you know? <laughs> Anyways, I continued uh, with the store selling t-shirts when I noticed a huge gathering of people to the right of the store. And I assumed that the speaking had started, and because I had no warning, I assumed I wasn't speaking anymore. So I wandered over to have a listen, and suddenly my name was called out. So I flicked my phone out and I opened up to the journal entry I did when I lost my mind, walked up to the microphone, read it out, finished, hugged my sister and went back to the store. And throughout the day, I was greeted with so much love and reciprocation by the people who felt my words. And I was reminded of the power of speaking and how healing it is to speak and be heard. Um, yeah, it's, it's a literal form of magic, you know, the transference and exchange of energy. It opened up the beginning of what would be my journey of returning to my true self. 
The destruction of my mind was a blessing in disguise. It opened up the doorway to the greatest opportunity of all, the opportunity to embark on the pilgrimage of remembering who I am. I am still on this journey today. My mind never returned, but I continue to remember. I remember not what this world has taught me, but what my DNA is encoded with. Through this journey, one thing that I remembered is that it's our intelligence and our mind that is our greatest obstruction and that it is much too simple to ponder long. <clears throat> I don't even know who I am. Lost my mind a few weeks ago. Now I'm lying in bed thinking about the world, thinking about how my foundation was ripped away from me when they threw my ancestors off cliffs and left bullet wounds as gifts. Now I'm lost because someone's greed was more important than living beings and the genocide hasn't ended. They've taught us so well, now we kill ourselves and the truth, they continue to bend it. My DNA tells the stories of rape, abuse, murder and pain, stained with the bloodshed and trauma too messed up to be in a Stephen King movie scene and my head hurts trying to understand why, why my heart always wants to cry, why a part of me always wants to die because it knows it'll never be whole as long as my people suffer and I don't even know who I am. So how am I supposed to help? And everyone is so caught up in this false matrix, they can't even look around, chasing dollar signs in the next trend because they're just as lost as I am, but they have the ignorance to keep themselves safe. Minds trapped in their screens, scrolling through unrealistic dreams, ones that are only attainable through defamation, but at least they don't spend nights losing their minds and reinstating their right to exist, and I don't even know who I am. Trying to piece the puzzle together, but my soul is being pulled in too many directions. How do I exist in these two worlds? A child who harms its mother is in the unhealthiest state. So what are we humans if we harm our mother every day? We are taught not of trees, but of uncles and aunties, grandmother country. When you pillage our land, you are killing our family while our family's trees leaves drop off because you fund drugs and discipline over healing. And our children are aborting themselves because they are stuck suffocating under a blanket of oppression and don't know how to survive in two worlds that so greatly contradict each other, ripping their soul's limbs to the point of rupture. Humanity is judged on how you treat the weakest member of the society. And from the looks of things, we are all going to hell because our silence and lack of action is abuse too. Who wants to be a part of a system whose leaders molest children and the people have nothing to say? They move aimlessly, ticking boxes, voting for a bunch of puppets tied to the devil's hands. So here I lay with too much to say. So I hold back on these pages in order to remain sane. And I don't even know who I am. So I cry, capturing my tears and hopes my DNA has some sort of clarity. I stare into my dampened hand and scripture starts to relay and I feel a sense of familiarity. And I remember my DNA tells the stories of resilience, unwavering power, magic and nurturing, timeless wisdom, divine systems, men and women, grandparents and children who could have become myths and legends, but instead they laughed in the face of adversity because their roots reached the beginning of it all. So it's impossible for us to fall when our trunk's core is made of stardust energy and can never be destroyed, only transformed. 
It's in the law we know. And though the song lines have been broken, I journey into the ocean to bathe in the womb encoded with truth, revitalizing my spirit and bringing me home to you. Mudrul, that's who I am. I am everything and everything is me, so I am not afraid of pain. I will get back up and try again, and I ask that you do the same, and that we stand hand in hand with our differences aside, reclamation of our minds, they mine with compassion in our eyes, and joy in our stride as we walk free from the spiritual shackles placed upon us in the hospital ward when the tainted spirit touched our crown and took it away from us. But it is much too simple to ponder long. That story was performed by Tiara Cole. Tiara originally told her story at Spun, a live storytelling project in the Northern Territory. Spun also has a podcast. To find out more, search for Spun Stories wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All the Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. At All The Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pay you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. Up next, Indigenous Papua New Guinean writer and organiser Lungol tells the story of his people paying homage to times of peace, reflecting upon a history of colonial violence, and looking forward to a revolutionary future. When I lived, life was good. The seas were gentle and the fish were plenty. The air was fresh and the soil was soft. The sun used to kiss me on my face and the moon would sing me to sleep. I watched my mother make magic in our garden. Her hands would enter the soil bare, disappearing beneath the surface only to reemerge with food. As I aged, I learned how to grow food, but I saw magic in her nevertheless. My father would leave our home in the mornings and find his in the waves. He made his canoe as he made his children. Strong, lean, and ready for the ocean. And like his canoe, he made me with patience and love. My daughter was a strong woman. When she lived, life was different. Her gardens gave her the food I could no longer provide from the grave, and soon enough she had little hands to show her magic to. But soon strangers came and called her magic witchcraft. She was made to cover her body with another woman's clothing as if it was something to be ashamed of. She was punished for loving our gods and was forced to love theirs. They made her pray on her knees as if she was a slave. I suppose she was. Her daughter was a different woman. When she lived, life had changed. 
Her hands were too soft to create magic, and she ate food someone else had harvested. The air was different, and the fish were rarer. She was unlike her father's canoe, frail, soft, and afraid of the ocean. Her mother never loved her god, but she did. She called our ways witchcraft and called her brothers savages. She prayed to a man she had never seen before until all but her skin had turned into the foreign women she dressed like. Her son was a white man with a black face. When he lived, life had changed still. He was arrogant, greedy, and violent. He grew to hate his color as his mother had done before him and took pride in the way his tongue shaped the foreign words spoken by the invaders. He thought it made him wiser. He beat his wife as he had seen his pastors do. Women were no longer his equal. He thought he was better than his sisters because the white man wouldn't let them into his school. The white man built his school on the graves of my brothers. His daughter had never seen magic. When she lived, life was new. She traveled on roads instead of waves and slept on foam instead of mats. She could only sometimes remember the way the sand felt beneath her toes. Her father refused to educate her, so when she tired of her husband's violence, she was alone in a city her people did not build. So she created her own magic. She sold lollies under the sun to feed her baby and sold love under the moon to feed herself. When she returned to the sand she once knew, it was submerged in water. Fishes now lived in the home she had left behind. Her daughter was a chief without a throne. When she lived, the life was newer still. She was the first woman in her family to go to school, and soon she was the first in her family to get a degree. Soon enough, she was the first of her village to cross the ocean to learn about healing. When she returned, she was history with feet. She loved the white man's god and spoke the white man's tongue, but she also taught the white man medicine. She went back to the village to heal her people often, refusing to be paid in the white man's money. Some of their children couldn't breathe. Her son owns the voice you hear now. As he lives, life is what he makes it. He knows not of his first language, nor of his first gods, but he knows of me, and he whispers me back to life sometimes. He rejects the white man's god and refuses to be defined by their language. He loves the color we both share on the surface of our skin. He is as he is, and he will never apologize. He has never sailed a canoe, but he is very much like my father's. 
strong, lean, and ready for the ocean. He will heal the seas the white man has infected, and he will bring life back into the oceans they have killed. He is just as much of me as I am of him. And one day, he will say that as he lived, life was good. That piece was written and performed by Lungol Wakina, with sound design by Danny Stewart. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to Elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wandri, Woiwurrung and Boonarung lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun. And our production manager is Danny Stewart. Emma Pham is our social media producer. Our community and events coordinator is Lydia Yosefova. And Wing Kwong is the All the Best Mentee producer. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. Thanks for listening. <laughs>